The Learning Hack is on a break, recommencing on the 5th of September when our guest will be Nigel Payne. In the meantime, here's another chance to listen to one of our most downloaded episodes of the year, which features Stefan van Hooydonk on Curiosity. Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer. And now, guess what? Learning is cool. Learning is cool. Learning is fun. And knowledge is power. Knowledge. Education. Learning. It killed the cat. It tempted Alice down the rabbit hole. And now curiosity is taking over the world of learning. But is it just another L&D buzzword? We ask a CLO who was in charge of 300,000 learners what curiosity means to him. Hack Facts. Stefan van Hooydonk is founder of the Global Curiosity Institute and co-founder and dean of the Earth Academy. Originally from Belgium, Stefan has lived, worked and studied all over the world in a learning career spanning three decades. He has held numerous leadership roles in large companies, As Chief Learning Officer at Cognizant, he was in charge of L&D for 300,000 people. Last June, he published the Curiosity Manifesto, How Curiosity Helps Individuals and Workplaces Thrive. So, Jay Curtis, Head of Themes, what did we talk about? No surprise that the big theme was curiosity, John, but I got the sense you were quite sceptical about that as a topic area initially. Completely sceptical. Here comes another big, meaningless, abstract noun, I thought to myself. But Stefan won you round, I think. Pretty much. You certainly probed the subject in a bit of depth. Individual curiosity, corporate curiosity, and the interesting question of whether curiosity is unequally distributed in organisations. We're all curious, but not everybody gets the chance in a work environment to really pursue their curiosity. Stefan thinks that has to change. Curiosity, he says, lies at the root of innovation. And as such, it holds the keys to an organisation's success in the modern world. So, Stefan Hoidonk, welcome to The Learning Hack. And thank you for giving your time today for this first episode of the sixth season of the podcast. It's amazing we're up to six seasons. In your career, you've been Chief Learning Officer for some very large multinational corporations, Philips, Nokia, Agfa, Cognizant. And at Cognizant, you were responsible for the learning and development of some 300,000 people. On the face of it, that seems like um, an absolutely mind-boggling task. So my first question is, how do you actually do the job of L&D on that sort of scale, in 100 words or less? (laughs) I, I was used to big companies, but I was never used to a company of 300,000 people when I joined uh, Cognizant. I didn't even know that the world was still making companies that big. <laughs> um, but of course, coming into such an organization, one of the questions is, what, how am I going to touch 300,000 people? Because as a learning and development or a chief learning, a chief learning officer, your role is to make people better. So one, I think... If I distill my experience from there, I think the, a couple of things stand out. First of all, is um, focus on culture. Trying to reach 300,000 people, you'll never be able to 
to, 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 to reach every single person. But you can focus on the culture. And um, one and, and the learning culture in, in specifically. So what I what I tried to do there was to almost tweak the, the learning culture and tweak, tweak the overall culture of the company to move towards to an environment where we're enabling people and people could enable themselves rather than in this kind of more traditionalist uh, Frederick Taylorist approach of, of mandating and pushing learning and those type of things. So it's giving the environment for people to be feel free to learn, uh, to be open to learn. We had this, um, this um, um, slogan, open wonder learn. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and that was all of it. And we kind of did lots and lots of marketing around it. And we, we try to embed it in every manager discussion, in every, in, in, in many different ways that it's, it's all about open wonder learn. And if you stick out your neck yourself, dear employee, um, to open wonder, then you will learn and you will get on with life and you'll make a career and you'll be happy and things like that. So um, Cognizant is an IT company and the world I realized very quickly the world was going way too fast for me to control it all because every every half year there was something like three, you know, 3,000 different computer languages coming out. So for me as a learning group uh, to try to kind of manage it all, it was just way too hard. So what we tried to do very early on is, is more create the environment, create the culture, and then let it go and then step out of the way and learning happen by itself. And so I pushed. I, I was focusing much more on the pull side of learning versus the push. The push side of learning, and also kind of part of this culture for me was: if you have the knowledge, do share it with others. I often talked about the difference or or, or the complementarity between consuming learning and contributing to learning. Often I was saying I'm the proud owner of three hundred thousand trainers because everybody's got something interesting to say to at least one other person. So my question then to myself and my team was, how do we create an environment uh, to really enable those people to share their knowledge through tooling and other things? So, um, so that focus on culture is really important. Another thing maybe is create capability academies, um, create really niche environments where close to business to drive learning, where business was seeing us as part of them and not as being kind of this separate entity that sits in some headquarter, that sits in some HR environment, where um, which is different from themselves. So these, these are probably some of the key things I tried to focus on. Um, and it was quite successful, actually. It's really interesting to me that uh, it sounds like a lot of what you have to do in dealing uh, with, with um, the job at that kind of scale is to do with learner autonomy. Um, you know, you change the culture and uh, you, you concentrate on people, you know, user-generated content and so on. It's what the learner can do for themselves, what they they can give themselves. And that does lead on to curiosity, which I'd like to talk a bit more about in most of this interview. But initially, before we move on to that, um, with your impressive level of experience, I guess you would have some useful advice to give to L&D people about one of their major pain points that comes up in service again and again, which is talking to the business, mm-hmm. um, making L&D relevant to the business and so on. As a CLO, how do you make L&D feel relevant to your internal clients and stakeholders? How do you get buy-in and credibility with the business? I'm sure a lot of people would like to know your advice on that. Well, with, with my team, I was always drumming 
the drum around three different themes, and I, I probably add this, this is going to be quite relevant for uh, for the audience. First of all, if you're a learning professional, you have to be damn good at your job. Um, and for me, that is, you need to have an, an, a, a theoretical underpinning of what you of what learning is all about or what cognition is all about, how people kind of, how memory works, how retention works. Um, if you're not good at that, don't even get there. Just saying that my parents were trainers or teachers or I love people is not just good enough anymore. So you create the credibility. If you want to work in the legal department or in finance or in marketing, you need to have a degree. You need to prove that you're good at the theoretical side of things. So, so that one what was the first thing I always encouraged my people. And we did lots of internal training programs on on getting our, our learning and development colleagues up to speed on on the uh, the science of learning. Really, the second thing was what I was telling to my people is never go to a meeting unprepared, and prepare yourself with data. The more you're in tune with data, the more the conversation is what you could probably call in transactional analysis terms, an adult-adult relationship, an adult-adult meeting, where you're talking together as equals. Um, if you don't prepare yourselves, and if you don't have data, uh, for instance, of what happened last year with that group or that manager's group, or we invested so much money into your team and look how much money we got out. If you have those data, the, the discussion goes really well. If you don't have that data, you always end up leaving the meeting with a long list of wishes. Um, and often what, what learning and development people are talking to is people that are senior to themselves. I was speaking to my CEO and, and my people would be talking to heads of businesses or, or, or heads of HR type of type of people. So you're ending up anyway with this difference in, in hierarchical level. So if you don't go with data and all kind of data, for instance, we trained so many thousand people last year and the billing rate changed, yes or no, question. And if you have the data to prove that billing rate changed because of the, the trainings that you've done, or that there's a better engagement score or something, um, then you have a discussion. Uh, and then you can really focus on, on, the, on, the, on the important things, um, rather than the, the things that are just top of our head, uh, because um, they, um, um, so, okay, that's the second part, use data. And the third dimension I, I try to always encourage my team is don't see our we shouldn't see ourselves as a support group as a support group we should behave as a co-creator of the future again uh, be an adult amongst adults and don't be a child among among parents in the transactional uh, analysis uh, analogy and those three dimensions i think is very important um, first of all step up uh, have that credibility um, and maybe to continue the, 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 the analogy with, with law that people in the legal department need to have a legal degree, I've never, if you, I've never seen anybody go to the legal department and say, oh, I want to have a contract and it has to be 14 chapters and three pages. Go again and do it. <laughs> While in the, learning, in the learning environments, very often, senior, these senior leaders, by the sheer fact that they also went to school somehow, they think they know about adult learning and they know about the how some 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 business problems has has to change into learning or performance or any uh, anyway so they almost dictate do me a three day leadership program and off you go and tell me when it's when it's done mm -hmm. at that moment the credibility should step in and the data should come out saying well you have a pain point great i know how to deal with that 
and I know um, and I will feedback um, um, because see last year I did something similar and it was successful because the data show us to or last year we, you tried something on me or you tried something similar on me it didn't work and here's the data that it didn't work so maybe it's better for you to start listening to me very interesting good answer Now I'd like to get on to curiosity. Most recently, you founded the Global Curiosity Institute. Um, curiosity is a word we hear everywhere in learning at the moment. I, I, I got to admit, I was a bit cynical when it first started to be talked about a lot. because I thought, oh, here's another big abstract noun we're all going to have to um, use every time that uh, we do, do a presentation. Um, but I've kind of gradually be, become less cynical and, and, and become convinced, but I, I think I need you to put the cap on my conviction about that. Um, you talk knowledgeably and engagingly on the subject of curiosity. Um, to start at a very basic place, uh, it does seem to me that everybody is curious, with our shelves being suddenly empty in the local supermarket, for instance, we've all got curious about supply chains, how supply chains work, in a way that perhaps we never were before the pandemic. Uh, with climate change, householders in low-lying areas are suddenly very curious about rainfall patterns, for instance, in the local area. Am I going to get flooded? You know, is my house going to go down in value? And it, it seems to me our curiosity tends to be driven by very immediate needs of ourselves and our loved ones. And I guess you could bring Maslow's hierarchy into that. Mm -hmm. But it feels like you're talking about a, a, a sort of higher, higher order of curiosity when you talk about curiosity in the context of learning. Can you, can you pin down exactly what you mean by curiosity in this context? Beautiful question. Let's, I think let's take one step back. The, I think curiosity is something that we all take for granted. Um, it's a word like what you, you spoke about yourself. It's one of those words that we take for granted and, 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 and that's, that's the end of it. Um, yet what I've, I've set up now, the, the, the Curiosity Institute a year and a half ago, and the more I'm starting to research curiosity and read about curiosity, the more I'm starting to unravel these different aspects of curiosity. And, and it's actually quite exciting. Now, the time that you mentioned about supply chain in the weather is actually a, um, um, a, a notion that researchers, researchers call deprivation sensitivity. It's a way that you are deprived of some information, of some knowledge, um, and that, that gets you going to find out what the solution is. Uh, marketeers, for instance, use the same notion when they, when they talk about uh, information gap theory. And they often use it in advertising, um, like um, this or this or that famous person has found this this miraculous way to make money. Go uh, go and help. Uh, go and find out what it is. Or um, two products left, or other people have bought the same book uh, mm. and bought something more. So there's this this notion of um, of you other people might know something, and that sets you going. So what you mention is actually part of curiosity. What you see also in the, in the research that people are really good at this type of curiosity, because that's not the only type, they tend to be really good at problem solving, better than other people, because these people might be um, looking at something and suddenly say, well, what do I do with this? And somebody might, they might not almost kind of proverbially, they might not sleep until they found the solution. Um, it's like Thomas Edison, who needs to go go through hundreds of different types of materials to figure out how the filament of an of a incandescent light bulb works. Now, my my own definition is 
of curiosity is the intentional mindset to challenge the status quo, explore, discover, and learn. And already you see the intentionality and the mindset and challenging status quo, but learning very, uh, very importantly uh, featured in them. In, in the context of learning, um, I think you will agree with me that curiosity is an important spark to get learning going, to get passion going, to get, um, if you're bored uh, in a lecture or in a, in a podcast, you're not going to remember a lot. You're not even going to bother to, to continue listening, you know? Mm-hmm. So learning and curiosity is really, really, uh, is really key. Now, sometimes I'm, I'm asking myself how much, and then linking to the learning and development uh, organizations and groups, how much is learning and development supporting this curiosity? How much are we creating curiosity in the solutions, in the services that we're creating? Uh, are we sparking this? Um, and maybe some of the opportunities for, for L&D, therefore, could be maybe indeed um, help with creating more pull versus push, because push is a function of compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, the, the, the opposite of curiosity is conformity or compliance. Um, so are we pushing people into um, uh, conformists or are we, cre- are, are we pushing people into um, being curious about themselves, about the world and others? I'm defining curiosity one, one, at one level deeper as the intersection between three dimensions. That seems like an extremely contentious statement in the context of um, training and the training business say that curiosity is the antithesis, did you say, of compliance? Compliance accounts for a huge amount of, um, of learning, learning that's given in organizations, surely. That's true. Um, now, if uh, the compliance is something that you need to do uh, structurally as an organization, hmm. um, um, learning is something that happens to the um, to drive the business forward, um, compliance is a, is, a, is a step that you need to take to make sure. Because otherwise, you can't be in business. If you're in the healthcare industry, you need to do a number of compliance things. If you're in North America, you have uh, uh, sexual harassment type of things. Uh, and depending on your geography and your industry, you need to do something. Um, but that's not really learning. Um, that's solving a compliance issue. Um, and what I'm talking about, not necessarily at the learning and development uh, opposite between curiosity and uh, compliance, is that um, there's a difference between exploration and exploitation. That comes from the strategic dimension. Exploitation is always looking at, at, the, at, the, at the, the past and perpetuating and making scalable something that you've invented, invented in the past. And you see that in the 20th century, you've been really good at this. Um, look at, uh, for instance, an Eastman Kodak. Uh, Mr. Eastman, they, he invented something at the end of the 19th century, and for 100 years, he was, he was able to, to run with it. He didn't have to explore anymore beyond that initial driver. Nowadays, companies cannot afford not to explore anymore. Um, while, and the point I'm trying to make is that if we're not careful, then um, uh, companies will, will follow that suit. Uh, and you see that already with the, the shrinking life cycle of organizations. In the 1950s, it was still around 64 years. Now it's about double, um, it's about 15 to 20 years that companies are surviving nowadays. Um, 
So um, let me come back to the opportunity for LMB. First of all, encouraging pull. That's a really important one, I think. Um, first, secondly, an important one is also um, think about training people on curiosity. Uh, think about training people on mindsets. I think that's a beautiful opportunity for learning and development. We've been focusing so much in the past on focusing what I call primary skills and secondary skills. Primary skills means core business skills. You need to know how to operate a, a machine. You need to know how to sell your products um, 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 and that's supporting uh, a business in its core processes. Secondary skills is um, all about leadership, is how to be a professional and show up as a professional. Tertiary skills or meta skills is about mindsets, training people growth mindset, training people curiosity. A lot of us in, the, in learning and development are shying away from this. Um, and often we blame it on recruitment. Well, these people are curious enough or these people are not uh, uh, engaging enough. And find us, find me new people, not realizing that actually curiosity is also something that you can improve upon. It's like a muscle. And then the third thing, I think an opportunity for LMD, I already spoke about it, use data. Um, and be curious around data that you can use towards uh, um, driving things uh, differently. So there's quite a number of things that if learning and development people or CLOs, CLOs are embracing the concept of curiosity, there's many things they can do with it. In the struggle against the forgetting curve that learning people are engaged in every day, there are no magic formulas, but there is science. For well over a century, psychologists have known that the spacing effect unlocks deep learning and helps learners power through to peak performance. And yet, who uses it? Despite the fact that modern learning systems like LXPs make it almost easy. I've written a white paper with Learning Pool that shows how you can use the spacing effect to beat the forgetting curve. Download it now. The Learning Hack podcast is supported by Learning News, the learning sector's newswire. Rob and his team are good friends of the podcast, and we really value the help and advice we've had from them, and they do a great job. For the very latest news from around the learning sector, for interviews with learning leaders, the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning, go to learningnews.com. You've spoken about algorithms and how they can be bad for curiosity. Can you talk a bit about that? We're all caught up in this web of algorithmic attention manipulation, which is constantly monkeying with our curiosity. You could say it's the fuel the whole engine runs on, this constant distraction. Um, and so way that, that kind of our curiosity is part of the engine, is the fuel that the end drives this engine. So what is the danger that we need to recognize there? Um, and how can we get back a bit of control? It's a, it's a great question. I'll, I'll come to the notion of awareness in a second and self-awareness. The um, algorithms or, or internet uh, is one of the potential barriers to curiosity. Um, I often talk about this intrinsic uh, intrinsic barriers so the barriers that come from within yourself could be anxiety could be could be uh, could be stress it could be overconfidence could be arrogance and so, so they have a number of internal dimensions algorithms fits in the list of external barriers to curiosity and that's together with having the wrong role models uh, for instance having a manager that's not really supporting or is looking over your shoulder and is stifling curiosity algorithms is uh, is one of them now Internet is probably the biggest invention of the last century. 
um, and internet is such a beautiful tool to, on the one hand, explore the world, um, yet on the other hand, it's also a great tool to, um, to, um, um, to be entertained. Let's call it entertainment. So for people to just go with the flow and some often people talk about the internet rabbit hole. Um, you start with a question and then three hours later, you're still on the internet, not realizing anymore what the initial question was. And you're still there. So that's not really the intellectual uh, uh, pursuit or ex intellectual, uh, uh, in intellectual um, exploration that you're getting into. So there's probably a distinction that we, we have to make when before I continue talking. There's a difference between productive and unproductive curiosity. And I'm talking about curiosity in the workplace. You could also use that in the private sphere, but let's talk about productive. Productive is curiosity which starts with a question um, has discipline in the pursuit and has a clear goal. I want to solve something. Uh, I want to learn a new language and I'm putting in the time and the effort to, to learn it and get there. Unproductive curiosity is the opposite. Something is missing, like the rabbit hole exercise. You know, you're not reflecting, you don't have a goal, there's no discipline, um, 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 or you're using it to kill boredom. Um, often you, um, you're in London. You're in London, no? Brighton, very close, right. 60 miles okay. from London. I lived two years in London, and it's not only about London, it's in all uh, big cities. If you're in the, in the, in the subway, in the tube, um, everybody's looking at their, their, their smartphone um, as, if, as if people are not interested anymore in the person sitting next to them, uh, because we want to somehow be entertained by, and some of us are reading, some of us are definitely doing things to, to, to increase knowledge, but many people are just killing time um, while waiting. And so that's a, um, a less productive type of curiosity. Gossiping would also be uh, petering in the, in the less productive curiosity side. Now, social media and algorithms, I think social media and algorithms probably come, can be easily mentioned in the same, same line, in the same sentence. Um, social media and the algorithms in social media, they really invite people to stay within the same tribe, within the same group um, and containers. So the challenge with curiosity there is that if we're not careful, we're starting to be less interested in what's happening in other tribes, in other groups. And the more we're kind of sucked into that uh, social media and then the more algorithms are supporting us to, uh, to Stocking us in into that into that group, the more uh, challenges uh, are with um, with um, yeah with things that are not necessarily healthy for for individuals or society or for groups. Mm -hmm. um, so you so so internet algorithms are beautiful things to to help, um, but they're also kind of dangerous. And self awareness is really important to know having the knowledge to know what you're doing and when you're doing it and what these algorithms are doing to you. We all have the sense of being free agents. And we all think that we're free agents and we're adult and we're rational, uh, but actually we're guided by a lot of internal but also external drivers that we're not even aware of. And algorithms is one of them. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll try to pick up one, one dimension about algorithms too, which is less about social media, which is something that I found in research. Um, and about academics, you would, you would think that after the introduction of internet, um, researchers would have had more access to research because it's freely available. Um, 
they don't have to go to the library anymore to look through all these uh, academic journals. They can have access, access to this. So you would imagine that the citations that they have at the end of their uh, academic uh, papers would be more, uh, more robust and more varied versus before. Um, because they just have access to more stuff. Now, what we found in, uh, in research is that it's actually the country. With the introduction of internet, the citations are less robust and more narrow. People are more reciting um, the same articles all over again, rather than inviting new articles. Um, and there's some, some, some hypotheses around this is cognitive laziness that people make a search around some something they're researching and it would just go for the top two or three uh, articles that the algorithms again spit out. And yeah. suddenly popularity is more important than um, usefulness. Yeah. Um, so again, their, yeah. uh, again, their awareness is really important. It, the internet is a beautiful tool, but we have to be aware that, um, that curiosity is, um, um, or that the algorithm is something that can, can help us or, can also detractors. I think it's interesting there. You were making me think of another one of your interests, I think, which is which is mindfulness. I mean, perhaps within this um, environment, what we have to do is to be very conscious of how we use our attention and mindfulness meditation, whatever else you think about it, can be quite useful in that, in monitoring what is going on in your head. Because so often you kind of, in your interactions with um internet and social media I find you think well why is it showing me this you know and and then if you think about it you realize well it's because I always look at this you know I, I shouldn't necessarily look at this I shouldn't necessarily be all, uh, interested in all these stories about film stars but actually this stuff when it crops up snags my attention even though I'm not conscious of being the sort of person that is like that, you know. So, a degree of mindfulness, perhaps, um, is is something that can help you with um, controlling your curiosity and directing it. Would Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Actually, I have three applications of curiosity, and mindfulness is is, is the third one. Or let's start with it as a first one: is curiosity about yourself. How much are you interested in, in, in your deeper drivers, in your values, in your purpose, in, in the unconscious and conscious drivers of why you say the things you say, why you think, why you're triggered to look at this specific internet uh, message? Another dimension for me of curiosity is empathic curiosity. How interested am I in other people? Uh, especially nowadays in the workspace, it's all about teamwork. It's not anymore about what I'm doing. It's, it's how I figure, how I show up in a team. And the third dimension is what we more traditionally refer to as curiosity, is curiosity in the world, is cognitive curiosity. How interested am I in the things around me? Um, and that's uh, the exploration. So um, the more, what I've noticed is the more people are self-aware, the more they can also show up more curiously in the other two dimensions. Mm. Um, and an interesting dimension, uh, when I've got now 3,000 plus people who've done my, my diagnostic, I've got this free diagnostic online. And um, the more senior people are, they are really high on and empathic curiosity as well as cognitive curiosity, but they tend to be quite lower than other people on self-reflective curiosity or the, the, the third dimension of curiosity. Um, and that's kind of a dangerous trend, I think, that if people are really at, at, um, at the summit of their careers and are in high-level high positions, it's, it's important for them to be self-aware. 
and to know what their what their limitations are because otherwise it's we're up for a, a, de- a dangerous uh, propositions of course interestingly that some companies are starting to tweak their leadership development programs towards being more inwardly focused rather than expertly. In the past, leadership development programs was all about, let's learn a bit about production, learn a bit about kind of marketing, learn a bit about leadership, learn about the external world. But some of these companies are now starting to say, let's go internal. Let's find out who you are as a person, your values, your purpose, your deeper self. And mindfulness and meditation suddenly figures features in there as a, as a new thing that is, I think, beautifully introduced into the world of learning and development nowadays. There's some INSEAD research you point to that says 83% of leaders say yes, our org allows, organization allows for curiosity, but only 50% of non-execs would say the same, which seems to indicate that uh, curiosity or the permission to be curious is rationed in organizations. Um, this puts me in mind of what happened to leadership learning, which used to be the preserve of the top 10% in fast track programs. Uh, and then some organizations started at some point uh, around the turn of the century, perhaps, or earlier, late 20th century, started saying, no, team leaders in, all, in call centers need it too. Um, and all points in between, you know, that Napoleon saying about every, uh, every corporal has a uh, field marshals baton in their knapsack and, and so on. A more democratized idea of what leadership was about came about, and, and that's far more widespread now. Is there a model we can follow there in democratizing curiosity, if indeed curiosity, you, you would agree, is rationed in organizations? And also I'd turn that question on its head. Um, is this what the whole curiosity movement is about, really? I'm always interested in why these words suddenly become popular. Is this the next stage in the democratization of corporate culture, or is that a bit too tendentious? Well, let's start with the last question. I think the 21st century for me is the century of ideas. And I think we've also realized now recently in the, um, the COVID experience, we're still in it, that some, somehow the, the answers or the solutions of the past are not necessarily fully helping us in driving us towards the future. Some, some industries are thriving uh, and some companies within industries are thriving while others are perishing or are barely surviving type of thing. So, so somehow the notion of coming up with new answers, coming up with even new questions to some of the questions, some of the answers that we have not identified yet is an important dimension. And more and more companies and more and more CEOs, whether they're startups or, or, or big scale-ups or big companies, they're starting to realize that we have to start looking at the world differently. Um, and curiosity is just a word, but call it openness, call it humility, call it uh, exploration. They're all, um, they're all relevant. And um, if you're looking at, for instance, if let's compare the Marriott with Airbnb. Marriott took 88 years to, uh, to amass six, 650,000 or so bets. Um, uh, Airbnb did four years to amass the same type of bets, and they're even bigger in terms of uh, share value uh, or, or market value than, uh, than than Marriott nowadays. So suddenly, having an idea and having our willingness to to rock the boat, to challenge the status quo, to engage in new ways of thinking or thinking, putting your thinking upside down, is is something that is needed more and more. 
Um, mm. in, the, in the last century, that was less needed. Last century, companies were more um, conformity driven because mm. that was the notion of industrial system scalability. You needed to be efficient and you couldn't have people that were rocking the boat all the time because that's, that's hard. Um, now let's come back to let's come back to the percentages that you uh, you've raised. Indeed, when you're when you're asking senior leaders, uh, is your organization curious? Then about 80, 80 plus people say yes, of course. When you're asking the non-leaders, uh, how curious is, is is curiosity enabled in your organization? Then only barely fifty percent of them say yes. So it's an important notion that we all have filters. Um, uh, in, in, in with, with which we're looking at the world. And this is also a bit, a bit dangerous, also for learning and development people, I think. If it's not that the, the, the way that I'm looking at the world suddenly is the way everybody else is looking at the world. Um, and I sometimes have discussions about learning with colleagues. Is, it's not because I'm learning in a certain way or I prefer to learn in a certain way that suddenly everybody has to learn in a certain way. Now, um, you asked a question about changes in culture. Um, what you, mm. I think we could see more or gradually a move towards more humanistic organizations. If you're looking at Novartis, for instance, they've adopted uh, Ombost and Curiosity as part of their corporate values. Mm. Um, and Ombost is all about in, in enabling the employee more and and making sure that the boss is 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 not a top-down decision maker, but is more of an a enabler of of the people. Again, um, um, we started off talking about the parent-child drivers. Uh, is the is the is the manager a parent, uh, and is the employee a, a child that is there to be obedient and to listen to what the boss is saying and to show up in the morning and say, boss, what I have to do for the day, or do both suddenly show up as adults, uh, both responsible and caring and, uh, and driving things. So, so you see more and more organizations that are enabling, uh, um, enabling that. Um, and you also could see that now the recent COVID situation with working from home and now the great resignation as people call, suddenly both employees and employers are starting to realize, do I want this type of work? Do I, um, and for companies, is this the right way to manage our people? Um, you know, so you see quite a number of trends showing up that, um, that people are becoming more focused on culture. Um, that the 20th century, we have been really good in what I talked about earlier, kind of the Kodak way of doing things, efficiency, effectiveness, um, exploitation. Now it's time to allow for exploration, uh, and exploration requires a different mindset. It's not about it's not about either or. Companies need to in, in, enable both. Typically, yep. startups are there with a really high end exploration, at least around the idea that they have. Mm. Um, and then, as soon as there's some 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 kind of scalability. Uh, coming into the equation, then it's about exploitation, how to exploit something as, 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 as well as possible. Um, now, there's a danger there. Some companies, they suddenly over-focus on the exploitation and they leave the exp exploration or the initial exploration outside of the door. Um, mm. And you see now in the 20th century, you need both. You need scalability, but you also need um, exploring the future, however uncertain that future might be. Mm. 
That lovely um, phrase, business as usual, of course. Yeah. You, you have the innovative stuff. It gets put in. How can we put this into business as usual? When it becomes business as usual, you then need a bit more exploration. But some companies you're saying stay stuck in business as, as usual. Yeah. We've talked a bit about individual curiosity and about uh, collective curiosity. I mean, a company can be curious or incurious. Uh, and they're, 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 obviously there's a difference there. You're slightly talking about two different things, aren't you? How the individual can become more curious, how the company can be more curious. Um, if a company isn't curious, how can you make it curious? And I think this comes back to L&D talking to the business, I think, and interacting with business. How can a CLO make his or her company more curious. Business tends to be curious about learning for two reasons generally. If something went really well, why did that happen? If you're lucky, they'll mm -hmm. look into that. Or if something went really badly, more often, um, who do we blame for that? And who do we need to retrain? So we can put it in a press release that we've instituted mm -hmm. training. I'm being cynical, but I'm guessing you'd say it was more about that. But really, how do you make the business interested in well, you're absolutely right. I think curious people need curious, in, in, in curious environments to thrive. Um, and initially, I found it a bit strange, and also talking to people, that curiosity is often linked only to the individual and less to the organization, as if individuals show up uh, curiously or not, and then the organization is just there. Uh, but what I found is actually organizations have a huge impact and managers and leaders uh, have a huge impact on how people uh, show up curiously. Um, now, there's an interesting piece of research done by um, uh, Francesca Gino from Harvard um, in, um, in a paper that she came that actually already came out in 2018 around curiosity. And she came up with three insights, which are, I think, beautiful to share. First of all, Curiosity is more important to the profitability of companies than previously thought. Secondly, by making uh, leaders and organizations can tweak their cultures towards more curious environments. And the third thing, which often people find a bit strange, although leaders say they uh, value curiosity, often they stifle it. Um, so if we're now putting ourselves in the in the shoes of a chief learning officer, I think next to being operationally excellent, which is again the exploitation exploration driver, a CLO needs to be damn good at what she's is is is, is supposed to be doing in the first place, and that's kind of upskilling uh, performance uh, support. Now, I think CLOs have an extra opportunity, first of all, to be a, a culture driver um, and help the organizations to focus on openness, to focus on uh, how the organization views learning. Um, I'm, I've seen a lot of companies where learning is seen as non-productive. People are either working or they're in learning. And learning is almost as painful as seeing people go on, um, uh, on, on holidays. It's painful because the manager has to deal with that somehow because there's a disruption in, in the system. And so, and CLO has the opportunity to tweak the, the organization that learning is actually not in product, not productive time. It's actually part of learning is work and working is learning. 
Um, I think you're, the examples that you've just raised, uh, raised are really great, that CLOs also could have an opportunity to focus not only in the individual learning piece, but also focus on the organizational learning. Um, are we doing after action reviews? Can we introduce uh, organizational learning into the equation? Um, another thing that I think Ellen, chief learning officers can do is, and I've seen that with a number of companies that I've been helping, start small with curiosity. Maybe bench, benchmark or measure one part of the organization, how well that part of the organization is doing in terms of curiosity in terms of failure readiness, in terms of do we have role models, uh, how's the learning culture, do we have a, an innovation culture, those type of different dimensions that you can um, measure. Um, and that's your baseline then. Um, and prove to the organization that this is really something good. Many, especially big organizations, they're more indeed conformity driven um, rather than, than curiosity driven. But I think chief learning officers have such a, a beautiful and embedded role, but also have enough distance from the rest of the organizations to really make a huge impact and, um, and very practically just put it on the agenda. Um, as a learn, as chief learning officer has the opportunity to tweak the, the, the learning programs that we're doing. No? Make sure that curiosity is part of onboarding. Uh, make sure that curiosity is part of the, the, the leadership agenda and that every leadership development program has um, a module about, about curiosity. Um, um, I've been working with some uh, CLOs around um, measuring their own team. How curious are we as a learning and development group and what can we do about this? Um, training meta skills, as we talked about earlier, kind of... Hmm putting that also on the agenda. Do we train people physically on uh, growth mindset, on curiosity, on resilience and, and those type of things? I think there's, there's quite a number of things that chief learning officers can do to, to, to bridge that organizational and individual curiosity and, and, and really shape it. Uh, maybe my last comment would be curiosity if it's not treated with intentionality is hard to, uh, to, 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 to flourish. Because as, as, as human beings or as, as systems, we're always drawn into this notion of um, we, we're looking for routine, we're looking for um, conformity, because um, that gives us peace, that gives us peace of mind, that gives us security that things, the things of yesterday are still happening the same way as, as, as tomorrow, that the, tooth, the toothpaste that we're brushing our teeth with is not poisonous, you know, um, that because yesterday it was safe. So we, we, the fact that it's today also safe gives us peace. So we're, we're all automatically drawn already into this notion of um, conformity, of, of, of um, predictability, and that gives us kind of um, in easy states of minds. And we need curiosity to pull us away from this. And only intentional curiosity can actually do this. So it's kind of a, a countermeasure or a counterbalance to kind of to, uh, to make sure that the elastic is, is pulled more in the other side. But it, it requires a bit more power. Mm. And that's true for individuals, but that's also true for organizations. We need to put it on the agenda. We need to make it part of our culture. We, may, we need to take some 
um, some some intentional measures. And I think CLOs are beautiful, beautifully placed in the middle of it all to uh, to make that happen. So lastly, what's the best place for people to follow your thought if they've similarly been inspired to curiosity? Probably two, two things. Uh, first of all, LinkedIn is always a very good place to where uh, I'm quite active there. Um, um, I'm also bringing out a book in May around workplace curiosity. It's called the, the Workplace Curiosity Manifesto, um, helping, uh, helping to, to dive even more into the theory, but also the practice of what L&D, what HR uh, can be doing for leaders, for individuals, for teams, and, and so on. And then um, uh, go to the website, uh, globalcuriosityinstitute.com. Um, you can also do there your, uh, I have diagnostics that people can do for free. Um, um, I've got kind of all my presentations are on there, all the articles I've written. So if people are more interested, then I'll make a link. I'll make sure this, this podcast is also linked on there once, once it's live. So that's maybe useful. Thank you very much and we'll put all those links in show notes as well so thank you very much for your time today it's been a really interesting um, conversation for me Stefan so thanks a lot thank you so much for having me that's all on the learning hack podcast for this time Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. If you want to help others find us, please like, follow, rate, review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. Till next time. Stay curious, learning people. Now I finally get it. 